This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Welcome to the show today, and thank you for joining me. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Norman Reynolds about racial injustices that have existed and continue to exist in our country, as well as in the practice of medicine. It's an unfortunate topic, but something super important to recognize and think about. One of the saddest things that I read about in the news recently was the article about the two young Black sisters who suffered strokes in the New York Times. The article was published on May 23, 2021, written by Gina Collada, entitled, These Sisters with Sickle Cell Had Devastating and Preventable Strokes. I'm an internal medicine doctor, and I only see adults, which by age means those individuals 18 years of age and over. In internal medicine, stroke or cerebrovascular accident is a medical diagnosis that I frequently encounter and sometimes expect. The older someone is, the likelihood of stroke increases. I'm surprised when I see younger patients with strokes in their 30s or 40s. It's unusual, but it can happen. And then the question also becomes, why? And it's even more unusual and unheard of to have children who have suffered strokes. Basically what I mean is, if you have a child who has suffered a stroke, no one should ever take this lightly, because essentially you know that some bad shit's going on. A kid should not be suffering a stroke. In this New York Times article that I mentioned earlier, we learn about 12-year-old Kyra, who is black and has sickle cell disease, and lives in San Antonio, who suffered not one, but two strokes on two different occasions, in 2015 and 2017. If her mother hadn't heard and woken to an unusual sound at 4 a.m. on a Sunday, her mother would not have found her lying on her back, gasping for air. This young girl, Kyra, suffered a second devastating stroke because she was never given an annual ultrasound screening test, which detects children that are at high risk for strokes, nor did she receive treatment that has been proven to prevent strokes, which has been around for at least 20 years. Kyra's older sister, Cami, also suffered a stroke. Both of their sickle cell symptoms began when they were babies, when they would be screaming due to fierce pain from sickle cell crises. Sickle cell disease is more common in certain ethnic groups, mainly those of African descent, And while we see it mostly in African Americans, where 1 in 12 carry the sickle cell gene, we can also see it in Hispanic Americans from Central and South America. Sickle cell disease is caused by a gene that affects how red blood cells develop. According to the CDC, healthy red blood cells are round, and they move through small blood vessels to carry oxygen to all parts of the body. In someone who has sickle cell disease, 
the red blood cells become hard and sticky and look like C-shaped farm tool called a sickle. The sickle cells die early, which causes a constant shortage of red blood cells. Also, when they travel through small blood vessels, they get stuck and clog the blood flow. This can cause pain and other serious problems such as infection, acute chest syndrome, and stroke. When I was in medical school, I briefly contemplated becoming a pediatrician. My medical school and the hospitals through which I rotated were located in the inner city, and the majority of the patients were black. Something that I will never forget is the sight of a little child in such agonizing pain during a sickle cell crisis that they don't even move. Because it was the inner city, there were a lot of children and adults with sickle cell disease coming into the hospital. I'm not sure if the word horrible even begins to describe it justly. Seeing someone in such incredible and excruciating pain is something you never forget. And it can go on for days. Up until then, I had never seen anyone in that much pain. And when it's a child, well, you feel even more helpless. And quite honestly, it fucked me up such that I've never forgotten those images of those suffering when I think of the disease. I loved interacting with the children, but what ended my brief vision of becoming a pediatrician was when during a night shift, I saw an extremely sick child being coded after his heart stopped beating. I was so traumatized by the event that I had to quickly find a room to sob. There is a known medication recommended for adult and children for vasoocclusive crisis in sickle cell disease, and according to the article, it can prevent 9 out of 10 strokes in children with the disease as recommended by the NIH. 11% of sickle cell anemia patients have a stroke by the age of 20, and the risk is highest between ages 2 and 16. But like a lot of children with sickle cell disease, these girls were never screened for the severity of disease. In that New York Times article, Dr. Francis Collins, director of the NIH, said that the lack of attention paid to sickle cell historically is one more reflection of the fact that we do not have equity in our country. We know that most children are not getting the annual ultrasound screens that's recommended for children with sickle cell disease in order to detect those at high risk for stroke. We also know that the inexpensive generic medication that I just described is also not being prescribed to reduce the irreversible damage to organs and the brain, although the guidelines from the NIH in 2014 recommend that all children and adolescents should take it, as well as adults with greater than three pain crises in a year or serious complications. In a recent study by Nancy Crago et al., only 32% of Medicaid patients in North Carolina had a prescription for the generic medication. This article by Gina Colada was truly humbling because she also compares sickle cell disease to cystic fibrosis as it has a comparable level of seriousness. And she reveals that while a third of as many Americans have cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis affects white children it gets 7 to 11 times the research funding per patient, which results in disparate rates of development of medications. Most people with sickle cell disease are Black. And when we hear Kyra and Kami's story, the question becomes, 
why? Why are we failing them? Why are we continuing to fail them? When there's evidence for what can actually help them, it's been known for a long time, and it's a standard of care that's recommended in the practice of medicine. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Norman Reynolds about some of the racial injustices in medicine. This interview originally took place in December 2020. Dr. Reynolds practices psychiatry in San Jose with extensive experience evaluating physician impairment and physician burnout. He is at the forefront of addressing disruptive physician behavior. He has held leadership positions with the California Medical Board's former Physician Diversion Program and was chair of the California Society of Addiction Medicine Best Practices Series on Impaired Physicians. He has also been elected to the status of Distinguished Life Fellow with the American Psychiatric Association. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Norman Reynolds. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? I'm a physician. I am also trained in psychiatry. Uh, what I ended up doing in practice, aside from treating individual patients, was doing comprehensive evaluations regarding potential uh, physician impairment and looking at what the underlying causes were for the impairment. So drugs or alcohol, personality issues, um, interpersonal conflicts in the workplace, medical issues, just looking at the whole ball of wax. Wonderful. So you're a physician advocate as well. <laughs> Correct. Thank you. <laughs> and as we begin our conversation about some of the history of racism that's existed and still exists and the racism that exists in medicine, can you tell us how this topic has become of interest to you? Yes, it goes back a ways. When I was in my early 20s, I went to Europe, and in particular to Germany, where I was an invited guest at the University of Heidelberg. And I associated with other faculty and students there. And somehow the topic of the Second World War came up and the persecution of the Jews. And they began referencing oppression of peoples in America. And this is a part of history that I never learned. And despite the fact that I was extremely well-educated and reasonably intelligent, I knew nothing about a lot of the references they were making. And it was embarrassing to me. And I came back home and I decided to focus on Native Americans. And I enrolled in a master's program in anthropology at Stanford specifically to look at the distortions and stereotypes of Native Americans in public school textbooks, and was appalled to find how much we had whitewashed and basically denied the details of important history. Come up many years later, a similar thing has happened around issues of Black history. I had grown up in a community where there was extreme prejudice. And uh, my mother came from Sweden 
and she did not understand it. My father was American, and he believed in segregation, used the N-word, etc. And I just couldn't get with it because it just seemed unfair to treat people in a demeaning way. In my high school, there were race riots. On my gym team in school, there was a black fellow who was probably left back, retained a few times. But my mother had always taught me, and my father too, be decent to other people. You can smile and say hello. And that's how I did it without thinking too much about it. There was a race riot that occurred between our schools and one night. I was chased from the other school by a handful of black kids and I got cornered up against a wall and I thought it was gonna be the end of my life. And all of a sudden, this black fellow from my gym squad stepped in front of me and faced them and said to them very calmly and strongly, you can come one at a time or all at once. And I prayed that they come one at a time. <laughs> but instead, I think they were stunned, first of all, that he was black, and second of all, that he was huge. It was like uh, Goliath in the Bible, and I was little David behind, only I had no weapons or safety, and he basically protected me. But thereafter, given the school climate, I, I, there was no way that he and I could communicate in that school setting. Yeah. And I felt, I felt terrible afterwards. Why couldn't I have been more courageous? Why couldn't I have been more of a human being? Why could I not have gone up to him and said, let's have a conversation. I want to thank you for what you did for me. It was only later in life that I realized I was not just a coward, which I really was at the time, but that there was a whole context surrounding that of African-American black-white history that I was totally ignorant about. And I was a victim of that in that circumstance. And I decided to be much more of an advocate. I love that. And reading your essay, you know, you describe your short, brief moments of interaction with that student that you talk about who ended up saving your life. Yes. But those, it, those really seem like moments of decency, the smile or the hello. But in the end, that, that student saved your life. I think that's, such, that's so profound and so beautiful that another human sticks up for another human. Even if you felt like you didn't have the words to maybe show him altogether. Yes. And I think also, <clears throat> if we had, he and I had acknowledged publicly, and people had seen us publicly acknowledging to one another, there would have been a backlash. There would have been a backlash to me against my white peers, and I believe there would have been a backlash against him by his black peers of why would you waste your time and energy on a white person? Mm -hmm. And for my peers, it would be, Norman, you're uh, an N lover, which mm -hmm. was a term that was frequently yeah. used. It was a time of segregation. It was, yeah. I mean, we were supposed to be desegregated. Yeah. But 
by law, but in fact, the segregation was still going on. I think it's still going on. You know, I don't think, you know, even though we are desegregated, we're not fully acting like everyone's equal. You're absolutely correct. But I think a lot of white people don't know that. They believe slavery ended with the proclamation and, you know, the end of the Civil War and that uh, everyone should get on with it and everything's copacetic and fine and fair when really it's not. No. You know, you grew up in the time of segregation and you had described your mother as feeling no prejudice and not knowing what prejudice was. Why do you think that was? You know, I think it came from her having grown up part of the time in Sweden with a set of parents, especially her mother, who strongly believed that all human beings are people regardless of race or color or religion or whatever. And I'm grateful for that because I don't know that I would have been the person I was back then without her influence. Because I think we all are greatly influenced by our family, our school, the community around us, our peers, the government. And what's happened is I think that for me, later on in life, when I became more informed, I felt that my public school and university education had cheated me. They had cheated me of an education about what the real facts are about African-American white history in this country. That the history is really not being included enough in our textbooks or the reality of the situation. Yeah, I call it whitewashed. Mm -hmm. And most of it is omissions of the dirty, ugly facts about what has happened to black people in this country. Do you think we're not remembering because of the whitewashing or do you think we're not remembering because we're not learning our lessons? I think in many cases, white people have been deprived of the opportunity to have the facts presented to them. So if you look at an organization like uh, Southern Poverty Law and tolerance.org, and you look at what a curriculum would look like, the curriculum that they present looks nothing at all like the curriculum that I had ever Mm -hmm. in any of my education from kindergarten through medical school, through residency, and continuing education courses. What curriculum do they present? So it's on the internet, tolerance.org. And it's about teaching tolerance. And they actually give an outline of topics and detail behind them that are important, I think, for us as white people and even black people who are oftentimes robbed of knowing their own heritage also because this stuff is so pushed out of sight. Or we as a nation... All of us to learn. So just a little bit, the curriculum, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, American Slavery, the real Rosa Parks, and the Montgomery Bus Boycott. I don't remember any of that in any of my textbooks. Connecting Slavery with the Civil Rights Movement, the Jim Crow North, 
I mean, I heard about Jim Crow, but I never knew the extent of it or that it persisted as long as it did. I thought it took place for maybe a decade or two after the Civil War. Nonviolence, self-defense, forgotten slavery of our ancestors. I agree with you. I think education needs to be more truthful so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. So in my opinion, people can't see what is invisible and what has happened in especially public education and even advanced education is that the facts of black history have been made invisible to white people and also to black people too. Like if all they learn about their heritage is what's taught in schools, they aren't getting a fair shake. It may be inadequate. Very inadequate. I was reading your essays and quite frankly, I have to say I was shocked. I couldn't believe that, you know, um, that the laws, uh, you know, with like in terms of lynching are not even a federal crime yet. That is correct. That in 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed an act, but still not approved by the Senate to make lynching a federal crime after more than a century of failed efforts to do so. It's 2020. Yeah, shameful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like what are we doing or not doing? Like how is, how is that possible? Again, I would, I would guess that the legislators in the Senate who are responsible for this uh, failure to act on this were also undereducated or ill-educated about the facts. So we become victims of our failure to educate. And um, unfortunately, people in positions of power who are un uneducated or undereducated can pass legislation or fail to pass legislation that's fair and equitable. It's true. And, you know, I thought I was reading you, you described the text of the act. And I love this line. Only by coming to terms with history can the United States effectively champion human rights abroad. Isn't that the truth? That's a quote, actually, that's contained within the House of Representative Act. That's not my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is my opinion, but it's not just my opinion. Yeah, it's incredible that we're living at a time right now where, you know, white supremacy or hate groups are increasing. Yes. By the way, that quote, I've never heard that quote stated in a newscast mm -hmm. on TV. I've never read it in a newspaper. That's sad. Yeah, and that says it. Yes. A human is a human is that is a human. Yeah, I'm glad you read that uh, that piece because that is a literal quote from the U.S. House of Representatives as an introduction to their act. I think when I think about racism, there's so much misunderstanding involved in it and fear as well. But sometimes I wonder if it also comes from scarcity, you know, not feeling like you have enough love even because if someone really came from a place of love why would anyone do that to another person you know i think you're right um i i don't people 
I don't think people know enough about Martin Luther King Jr. and his message and uh, how he went about presenting his message. It is a message of love. It's, it's profound. You know, like during the pandemic, during homeschool, you know, my kids are at home, you know, and we were reading books that we, we wanted to learn about, you know, important people in our lives. And one of them included Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, some of the quotes or some of his speeches that he stated, it, it brought tears to my eyes, you know? Yeah. To Quite not moving. judge their not to not judge their children on their color, but on their acts. It's profound. It's so progressive. But it's we've still not learned. No, we haven't. Not enough. But I think it's beginning to move. The needle is beginning to move. And without video footage of various acts of violence against black people like the George Floyd episode, I wonder whether white people would still get it or not. But I think when you see that live footage, you know, please, I can't breathe, and watch him suffocate on film, that's very impactful. Yeah. And it's not a one-off because there are many who preceded that event um, some of which were caught on film also. And I don't think it's just white people, though. I think there's many different kinds of people who share the same beliefs, you know, in terms of the racism, you know, in terms of uh, the the Republican supporters, you know, for our election. A lot of them were, you know, Cuban supporters or Cuban males. I think I think there needs to be more understanding. But I really wonder if these kinds of beliefs really come from scarcity, not abundance of love. <laughs> sure. I loved how you quoted uh, philosopher George Santayana. Uh, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yes. Yeah. So those who cannot remember, but there are those who were never taught. So it's impossible for them to remember something that they were never taught. Dr. Reynolds, if I may ask you, then as a white man in 2020, how have you chosen to live differently from the way you grew up at the time of segregation? I think that there are still areas of the United States that are just the same as were when I grew up. I've chosen to live in California. Um, there are people who live in New York City, the metropolitan area. I think that we are in general, more enlightened and more tolerant. Uh, although still, all of us have a ways to go to get fully educated about black, African-American, white history relations. But uh, I don't have to hide my views for fear of being pummeled or mm -hmm. yelled at or whatever here. But I think if there were other parts of the country that I was living in, um, it could be a real problem. Well, I think it takes courage to, you know, state the obvious truth and do something about it in your own way. And I wanted to say I respect that. Yeah, I, I've tried to do it through my writings. I very much appreciate your offer for me to participate in this 
podcast. I've never done this before. <laughs> so this is a first time. And uh, I hope that it does some good. I hope it, it uh, helps other people. And you publish your work in Medium as well as the Santa Clara. Uh, yeah, the bulletin, yeah, the of, bulletin. The, of the Santa Clara mm-hmm. County Medical Association. And I'm grateful to those sources for publishing that. How has racism existed in medicine? Let me begin by saying I think that there are many physicians who don't realize that racism has existed in medicine, many white physicians. I think black physicians know about it because they are very few in number in proportion to the rest of the physician population. And I think I read um, black physicians are underrepresented in medicine. Only 5% of U.S. physicians identify themselves as black. Correct. While there's 13.4% of the population that's African-American. Correct. We can ask, why is that? Why is it that there aren't more black doctors? And if you begin to dig into history, you'll understand why. It's not just because black students in college aren't that interested in going to medical school or becoming doctors. That's not the reason. Although many people may think that. Well, all they have to do, if they're interested, just apply. Well, it doesn't work that way. There's been a huge amount of discrimination. So, um... There was the Flexner report in the early part of the 1900s to try to standardize and improve education, medical education, by developing standards for accreditation. And unfortunately, those standards resulted in many black training institutions not qualifying. So I think there were only two that schools that qualified. What year was that? 1910. 1910. And thereafter, because of lack of funding, lack of support, it was hard for other medical schools to get off the ground and be accredited. So one of the answers to the question is there are few training institutions that are organized and run by black uh, faculty and physicians to attract black students. And sure, a black person can apply to a school that's primarily white, but what is it like for you as an individual to be perhaps the only one in your class who's black, or maybe there's only a couple of others, and the predominant population? is all white in terms of your peers, in terms of your faculty. That's a very isolating experience. I think there are other reasons um, too. So if we look at the larger organizations, the American Medical Association, the AMA, is considered a very prestigious organization. And for many decades, the AMA discriminated against including black African-American physicians in their membership. And only recently has the AMA acknowledged that fact, which is wonderful. I mean, all of us have flaws. Yeah. All of us make mistakes. 
But, you know, my mother used to say to err is human, to forgive is divine. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge where we've been and the harm that it's done and then offer remedies to make it better. And the AMA is doing that, by the way, huge initiatives in um, recent times to be far more inclusive uh, uh, of minority groups, uh, blacks in particular. What are they doing to be more inclusive? Um, including them in their membership, mm-hmm. including them in leadership positions, developing committees and organizations to address the issue of diversity and inclusion and putting together uh, programs to help educate uh, physicians. I think that's wonderful. I think so. I think Long that's overdue. a step. Yes, but that's a step, you know? <laughs> it's an important step. And again, what's important is that you keep with it. So doing something one time doesn't do it. You've got to embed it in your organizational structure, and you've got to do it from the top down. Mm-hmm. So the, the leaders at the top need to, there, there need to be inclusion of the voice of black people um, at, at the top, as well as at all levels below. Yeah, and these could be decisions where it could have huge impact for our future. Yes. I know for myself, um, I grew up in a poor family on the wrong side of the tracks. And when I was in high school, although I studied very hard and tried very hard, I was told by the uh, the person who was in charge of um, writing applications to college, I was told by that person that uh, I should not go to college um, because of my lack of command of standard English. And I got one of the lowest possible scores on the SAT in English, even though I got an extremely high score <laughs> in math. But the predominant thinking at that time was success in college was dependent on knowledge of English. Mm-hmm. So although I was angry at him thereafter, hurt, I realized afterwards that he was a victim of his own training also. Fortunately, I spoke with my science teacher who said, well, we'll just ignore him. (laughs) My science teacher and the math teacher, they decided that they would fill out my application without his knowledge. And I got into college and I, I, I don't say this to brag about myself, but to illustrate the point that I'm making, that you shouldn't judge people just on numbers or statistics or their socioeconomic uh, standing, or their if they don't speak standard English. Yeah. Because I, I left college in three years with a number of honorary um, achievements and graduated with honors in chemistry, which was no easy task. And at age 20, with only three years of education, Stanford admitted me into their medical school. So you can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. No. You need to get to know people. And that's the same for white people need to get to know who black people are, what their heritage is, and, and value what it is that they bring 
to our table. Or that the underlying truth is the same. We're all human. We're all human. You know, and we all have the capacity to hurt, to feel pain, and to feel love. Absolutely. And I think you're also really lucky for someone, for you to have someone in your life to tell you to ignore it. Like how many people don't have that message, you know? They hear a lot of crap, but no one tells them to ignore it, you know? Right, right. Because I think one of the things that is missing in medicine, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, institutional-based, um, but I think humanity is missing. And I'm not sure if it's because of how medical care is practiced, but I think we are forgetting humanity. Yeah. I gave a lecture some years ago now it's many years ago, <laughs> um, has psychiatry lost its soul on the very point that you are making here? Um, the word psychiatry, come, the root word is psyche from Greek meaning soul. And I believe that a lot of psychiatry has lost its roots in valuing the soul. Do you think it's a collective problem or do you think it's an individual problem? Not sure what you mean. I guess, you know, is it the institution? Is it the field of psychiatry? Or do you feel like it's the people who come in who maybe didn't feel so so much humanity? Or empathy? Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, systemic, institutional. So... Um, I wrote another article on being human in a dehumanizing profession and outlined many of the points that you're making here. So one of the sections of that article is on crying. And uh, there were a number of topics that never got addressed in my medical education. And what is, what if you feel like crying with a patient? And I can tell you, in my over half a century of being in the field of medicine, I've never seen a doctor cry. I've never heard a doctor address the issue of what if you feel like crying. And what happened to me is, um, during my internship, I was assigned to work in pediatrics, and I love children. And one of the little boys had terminal leukemia, and um, I was just pained to see what was happening to him. And I would literally go home on my nights off and get down on my knees and pray to God that he would die, die on the night that I wasn't there. And by the way, I'm 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 a selfish prayer. I only pray when I want something. And and, I, and just so that our listeners understand, I mean, if someone is terminal, they are dying, and it's sometimes, you know, I think you're praying for his humanity almost. You know, death could be so painful for the individual as well as those who surround him. It, that's the ultimate truth. Well, so the reason I. Mm -hmm wanted him to die on my night because I didn't know what to do if I was there and I started to cry. Yeah. I would feel ashamed and not know what to do. And so he, you know, God answered my prayer. He died on a night 
that I wasn't there. And then I felt awful at that point also, because the next day, understandably, the cleaning crew went in, cleaned up the room, remade his bed. Everybody was busy going about their usual business. And in saying that, I'm not saying that the rest of the staff and physicians didn't provide him with good care, because they did. They provided him with excellent care. But nobody talked about their feelings or what I was going through. Let me tell you the impact of that. The impact of that is that I decided there was no way that I could become a pediatrician because I might cry, unlike all the other people around me who seemed to be able to handle it emotionally without any signs of crying whatsoever. Actually, that's why I didn't become a pediatrician either. <laughs> <laughs> Every situation made me cry. Yeah. And isn't it a problem, as you described, like if being human in a dehumanizing situation is a problem. It is. <laughs> then it's survival of the fittest if you still maintain your humanity, you know? like yeah. I mean, the truth is in our profession for a long time, crying has and maybe still is seen as a weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it naturally selects for people who are not emotional and may actually encourage people who are cold, aloof, and detached to stay in those fields. But I can also tell you a little story of redemption. Um, my one daughter is a veterinarian, and they were told, they, they talked about crying in their education, and they were told, you do not cry. You don't. So she calls me one night. She's in practice early on. And she says, something terrible happened at work today. And I said, well, what? And she said, well, there was a family that came in with their animal, the mother, the father, and the two little children. And we had to put the animal down. And um, the two little kids were heartbroken. And they came over and put their arms around me and hugged me. And I welled up with tears. And I know I'm not supposed to do that. And I'm afraid they're going to report me and that I'll get fired. So I'm much stronger now than I was back when I was on the pediatric rotation. And I said to her, you know, if they fire you, they don't deserve you. They don't deserve you if they fire you over this. I think she thought I was just being a kind, supportive father, <laughs> which I was trying to be, but that it still might happen. But two weeks later, there's a big bouquet of flowers that get delivered to the staff and a letter, part of it written by the kids, thanking her for what she had done and telling her that when they got their next pet, they wanted her to participate in this election. But this is what we do to ourselves as a, as a profession, as a culture, unfortunately. And maybe, like you say, I wonder if, if when we're not crying, maybe we continue the injustices of the world. Maybe we all really need to cry about the things that have happened and continue to happen and feel it. Yeah, I remember what I said to her was, you know, people can tell when you are empathically crying for them. 
versus more self-orientedly crying for yourself. Mm -hmm. And the situations that we were in were situations of feeling like crying for the other person, communicating with them, binding with them in their grief and sorrow. By the way, back to the internship situation with a little boy dying of leukemia, I felt I had to do something I didn't know what. And I was afraid that I might run into the parents in the hospital or on the street because the little boy's father was a physician and that I would have to say something and fall apart. So instead, what I did is I wrote a letter to the parents and put it in a sympathy card and sent it to them. But I never told anyone else about that because I thought that would be taboo or inappropriate also. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that true? You know, when I was um, my, at my first job in the hospital, a patient had died and I wanted to send the family a card, you know, expressing sympathy over, um, you know, their loss and my patient. And I was talking to a peer who had been at the job for a really long time about expressing sympathy and sending a card. And his advice to me at the time, when I was young, I was just out of residency, was don't send the card. That would be um, a concern that you would be stating that you made a mistake with the care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're forgetting, you know? But that's how he was taught also. Yeah. Unfortunately. The untruth comes from somewhere. And in your essays, you describe, you know, like, the Tuskegee trials and the eugenics. Can you talk about that? Sure. What I want to emphasize here is my excellent advanced education and my ignorance. So the ignorance is illustrated with those two topics that you just brought up, which is that the eugenics movement took a strong foothold here in the United States during the 1900s, and prominent people supported eugenics, which is to improve the race, primarily the white race, by rooting out undesirable traits and to the point of sterilizing individuals who were seen as weakening the gene pool. In that context, there was a medical experiment set up in the early 1930s, which has since been called the Tuskegee uh, experiment, in which black, poor black men in Macon County, Georgia, were offered by the government free medical care. Wonderful. That's how it was advertised, free mm. medical care. Free medical care, mm -hmm. join. And they did. Many did. A few hundred. Unbeknownst to them, those who were infected with syphilis were never told they had the disease because the nature of the study was to follow the natural course of untreated syphilis. So the U.S. government, the medical practitioners in this study, all participated in this fraud to trick these infected black men into believing that they were receiving good medical care. 
And it was only until the early 1970s that this experiment got exposed and ceased. And the trial, the experiment happened for like 40 years, right? Correct. And it happened during World War II, in which the Nazis were experimenting on Jews, Mm -hmm. gypsies, homosexuals, uh, other undesirables, quote-unquote. And it also, I should point out, that in the Nuremberg Tribunal following World War II, which the United States played a major part in prosecuting Nazi doctors because they violated basic medical ethics, even the Hippocratic Oath. And out of that came principles about use of human beings in any sort of experimentation, highlighting informed consent. All the while, the Tuskegee... Was happening in the U.S. Was happening in the U.S. The hypocrisy. Yes. So to me, the worst thing that we can do as a democracy is to engage in hypocrisy, pretending that we are better than others when we're not. We're just as guilty, and we're hiding it from exposure. And And don't forget (laughs) what happened. And the eugenics movement was similar in that. And I'm sorry, regarding the Tuskegee trial, so 40 years uh, the patients who thought they were getting care didn't know, you know, that they had syphilis, so they were spreading it to their loved ones and who, who, whoever, you know, as the syphilis was progressing from stage one to stage four. Correct. Yeah. And um, um, what a sham. It is. But after it got exposed, um, President Clinton at the White House, offered a formal apology from the government. In the 1990s, right? Then. I know. Yeah, right? <laughs> so the, the the experiment took place from the 1930s to 1972, and then it was in the 1990s that there was a formal apology. Yeah. Again, a little late, but better than nothing. Yeah. And and offering some future safeguards as, as part of that. And uh, so that's one example of what came out of the eugenics movement. There are many, many more, Mm -hmm. including um, sterilization of, quote, undesirables, typically people of color. Puerto Rico experienced a huge decline in population as a result of sterilizations, mostly of women, because it was thought that Overpopulation was the cause of poverty and economic and social difficulties in Puerto Rico. And many of those were done with inadequate consent or no consent of the women involved. Similarly, in California, over 20,000 people, mostly women, mostly people of color, were sterilized. From 1909 to 1979. You're good. You got the dates <laughs> and that incredible 1979. Yeah. That's, that's modern that, times. That's not that long ago, you no. know? And we wonder why people of color mistrust white doctors and medical institutions. I mean, I think we're continuing to see it today regarding like the racial disparities in healthcare and the pandemic. Correct. 
You know, the CDC states like that, you know, in terms of COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths, that it affects more Black or African-American populations, Hispanic or Latino populations, and American Indians disproportionately. Correct. Yep. We've got facts that blatantly illustrate it. But preceding this COVID thing, the disparities have been there in black and white also. So if you look at uh, maternal health and child mortality in this country, the disparity between white and black is incredible. Or even in terms of, you know, U.S. pregnancy deaths, the numbers are shocking. You know, like only in the U.S. are the OB-related deaths actually increasing. And according to the CDC, Black women, along with Native Americans and Alaska Natives, are three times more likely to die before, during, or after having a baby. And more than half of these deaths are preventable. Yeah, and supposedly we're in a first world country, not a third world country. (laughs) But I think part of our people live, part of our population lives as, as if it's in a third world country. I think this needs to be known. I think we I think we all need to be aware of this. One of the things that was really shocking for me when I was a primary care doctor was that a patient, an African-American patient, was leaving uh, the insurance plan and was going to be changing doctors. And he asked me in the town of Santa Cruz if I knew any doctor in Santa Cruz who was willing to take on an African-American patient. That made me so sad to hear that in 2019 or 2020, he had to ask a question like that, like what he must have experienced in his own life to even have to ask a question like that, that he's not feeling that maybe his doctor is listening to him as a person. Yes. So you're bringing up an important point, I think, aside from the sort of academic-type presentation that I'm making here, it's extremely important to listen to the individual voices of the people who are participating in the system, the patients, Black, Latino, Native American, other minority-type patients, and also listen to the voices of minority physicians who are trying to operate in a largely white medical system. And when you hear those voices, it's quite uh, tragically moving um, to hear what they have to say about their experience. And I think if white people could imagine themselves with the tables turned and them being at that position, I think they would better understand how black people feel. And I think to be aware that we could be acting from our own hypocrisies, that they may still exist. And, you know, I think to recognize, I don't don't think it's a done deal. I think if we choose to recognize it and if we choose to make certain changes, I really do believe, like you say, that we can make the world a better place. Yeah. I mean, there is implicit uh, bias training that's being offered to help white people better understand how they 
act contrary to equity for people of color. And uh, maybe I could reference one study here in my paper. And by the way, I take my hat off to Ohio State University College of Medicine for not only doing the study, but publishing it, um, in which they looked at whether there was bias going on in their admissions procedures to the medical school. And the, in fact, the title of the article is Implicit Racial Bias in Medical School Admissions. And what they did is they asked the admissions committee members to take a black-white implicit association test prior to the next cycle of evaluating candidates and admitting them. What they found was that most of the people who responded to their survey thought that this exercise might be helpful to them in reducing bias. That's about two-thirds of them. And about 50% of them were conscious of their individual bias results when they went into the next interviewing session. So there was an increased awareness of looking at, am I biased or not? Mm -hmm. And identifying that, trying to do something better about it. And about 20% or a fifth of them believe that uh, knowledge from this exercise impacted their future decision. Result? Can't argue with results. The class that matriculated following that exercise was the most diverse in the school's history at that time. So there's hope and um, of educating white people in particular about their unconscious bias. And it's helpful to those, especially those who are motivated not to be biased, but unconsciously there are elements of bias that, that seep in. A major problem has come with the U.S. government, which was teaching courses about implicit bias, when President Trump ordered that they stop teaching any modules that would reflect badly on the white population, making it seem as if there was white superiority going on in our culture, because he felt that that was stereotyping white people. And President Trump criticizing Black Lives Matter. Hopefully we make room for change. And thank you so much for your thoughts, Dr. Reynolds. It's been a really interesting and enlightening conversation. Well, thank you. Your questions and your quotes have been very, very helpful <laughs> in this process. Appreciate it. Thank you. May you continue to shine your light. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.